So find your way to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to pick up, um, let's see where we can pick up. Um, verse 11, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. <clears throat> you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. Quote, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, quote, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord. And just technically speak, I think verse 1 of chapter 7 actually goes with the end of chapter 6. I'm going to read it. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Okay? So Paul is saying, do this, live this way, because this is truth. All right? And the this is true is what he basically sums up as you are the temple of the living God. Okay, so let's kind of walk through. Um, we already established this as Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthians. What would you say, and uh, in, in terms of the context, um, what what is Paul addressing? Do we have any idea? How could we kind of summarize that? Because remember, this would be our theme. Is it Thanksgiving? Is it uh, you know, end times things. How would you say, what is kind of the theme of this passage so far? Differentiating Christians and non-Christians. Yeah, so he's kind of saying, um, listen, you are this and they are that, and therefore they don't mix, all right? Um, so I guess you would say, I don't know, holiness. Uh, I call to holiness maybe a way to kind of put it, because in chapter 7, verse 1, he talks about perfecting holiness in the fear of God, and it seems like kind of how he's summing up everything. Um, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So, so Paul is giving a command to these Corinthians specifically, but to all Christians in general, that we're not to be unequally yoked. Or, and so, you know, if you were studying this passage, you'd have to kind of define what that is. But what would be an example, uh, just off the top of your head, of being yoked together with somebody? I was just telling the guys in the truck back when we first moved here 40-something years ago, we visited several different churches going out and, and trying to find one that was a good fit for us mm -hmm. and people and, and <coughs> family. One of them we went to, the preacher came out to visit us at, a, at our house afterwards. Oh. And we found out that when Vicki and I married, she was an assembly of God for mm. me because mm -hmm. I was Baptist. The furthest I moved from Southern Baptist, I went to a missionary Baptist one night. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> one night. <laughs> and so he said, straight out, he said, I would not have married you. Y'all are 
unequally wow. y'all were unequally yoked because she was assembly of God and you were Baptist. Yeah. I ushered him out of the house. Yeah. I, I would say it's a little extreme, I would think. Um, I think unequally yoked maybe kind of sort of would apply. If y'all were two young people, say, if, like for example, if my son was dating somebody, I, I would I would kind of give him some hesitations, but I wouldn't say uh, you're unequally yoked because he seems to define unequally yoked as believer, non-believer. Right. So, but again, um, you know, just... I don't, it might cause some difficulties if you were dating somebody or courting somebody that, from a different denomination. Uh, but if they're believers, then I would, you know, Paul says, yeah, believe. yeah. Paul says, marry in the Lord. He doesn't say marry in your denomination. So, yeah. So I would think that's a little, a little too much of uh, a stretch to apply this I verse to that. <laughs> so yeah so so what you're talking about is marriage marriage uh would definitely i think be included as being unequally yoked shouldn't marry believers shouldn't marry unbelievers uh what's another example of being unequally yoked because you know this in the context paul's not talking about marriage he does in other places but not here but i'm wondering if the context may give us any idea of what what would be another example I had in my Bible, I had put a little note, Samaritan. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Jewish were Jews. Yeah. And they weren't allowed necessarily right. to marry outside. And Samaritans were at least uh, right. Gentile or some little mix. Yeah, they mm -hmm. were mixed. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what I put in my mind. Yep. I've heard uh, some say that this could be maybe like a business partner, something like that. Uh, so unequally yoked uh, would be you know, some kind of maybe formal or uh, you know relational you know connection with somebody else. We know it doesn't mean that you can't have friends that are unbelievers. Paul talks about that in other places. So anyway, Paul's talking about he's telling Christians how to live in this world as a believer. And part of it is not being uh, yoked together with unbelievers. And then he gives all these, uh, I guess he'd be, you know, metaphors, I guess. What fellowship has righteousness with lawless, communion has light with darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Uh, what agreement has the temple of God? Look at verse 16. This is kind of what gets where we're getting to. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. Okay, I think all of us are kind of familiar with the idea of God's people being His temple. We've talked about it a little bit uh, the past few weeks. But uh, so, what do we do when we see a quotation in the Old Testament? What's the first thing we got to do? We will. Second thing, we've already determined the context. Then, what do we do? Read it. Right. Find out. So, use your cross references. Uh, where is Paul quoting from? Yep. I don't know about y'all, but in mine, I got several of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a there's a bunch of them there. So, and this is real common in the New Testament. Um, I don't know if this is in this one. Maybe another one I was looking at. No, it is in this one, where they will take <clears throat> uh, kind of remember the the theme or the thematic context that I talked about a while back. They will take a, a theme of the Old Testament and, and pull together like three or four different verses 
uh, and to, to kind of string it together because he's assuming that the people who are reading this or hearing this would understand the context of all those. And so this one, I think, uh, probably, and this one's quoted in, in a bunch of different places in the Old Testament, but I think, uh, what was it, Leviticus? I think that's probably our, our best bet, which is not a prophet. Um, is there another one? I got Jeremiah 31, 33, and Ezekiel 37, 26, and Zechariah 8, 8. Do y'all have all those? Um, 3238. Interesting. Yeah, I oh, do I do? I have both of those. I've got Jeremiah 31 and 32. Let's do, we've been in Jeremiah before. Um, let's do, uh, let's go to Zechariah. Let's try Zechariah. You know, if you were looking at these, you'd go back and read all those references. And, and more than likely what you're going to find on this one is that's something that God has quoted a bunch of times. God has said some said this, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you were, you know, took the time and kind of looked through all those verses, you're going to find that, wow, this is something that God has talked about a lot. And so if you're trying, if you really want to get, I'm just going to go to this, but I changed my mind. But, um, the idea, the concept of God dwelling with his people starts way back in Genesis, way back there. Because if you think about the whole garden experience, um, Adam and Eve were created, um, they were placed in the garden, God gave them everything that they needed, but what was the punishment essentially? Did they stay in the garden? They put them out, right? There's separation. So right at the very beginning, of scripture the big problem essentially is man is separated from god and if you kind of track all throughout scripture ultimately that's all that god is trying to get back right god is god wants to dwell with his people okay so that's a big concept all right let's go to zechariah let me find it what chapter was that zechariah eight, eight. <laughs> let's see if we can uh, Zechariah 8, okay? Let's see if we can begin at verse 1 and kind of get an idea. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we can use our little textbooks for this one. Zechariah, when you go back and you're reading these prophets, you have to ask yourself, okay, when did Zechariah prophesy? Does anybody know off the top of their head? The year 520? What could we... No, that's correct. What, what like, in history, biblical history... Go, go to your, use your books. Let me kind of show you what I'm getting at. There's, you can kind of categorize the different, I guess, epics of uh, history of the Jews. So on the very first page where, remember that one? Understanding the times of the prophets. What time is Zechariah prophecy? Is it the early monarchy? Is it the Babylonian judgment? The restoration period? Uh, during Zechariah's time, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Uh, let me see. In Zechariah. No, I'm thinking because 586 was the Babylonian captivity, yes. and then the 700s was the Assyrians, like 720. So this would have been. Would it be the restoration period after the? It says when they were that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, so it would be the restoration period. So I believe that's number 4, 539 to 400 B.C. What year did you say, Ray? 520? 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520. 520.
Okay, so would that be, I get confused when you do BC because it goes backwards. So that would be, <coughs> yeah, yeah it, it throws me off every time. So is Zechariah in here? I don't know why Zechariah is not in. Is Zechariah in the restoration period? Okay, okay. That's what I was thinking. I just don't know why they in our books. I thought I had it. I guess I just didn't mention all the prophets. Gotcha. All right. So we're okay. So if we're thinking in our minds in terms of biblical history, and we know, you know, and our, our our theology says that God desires to dwell among His people. Sin has interrupted that. And if you think about the kingdom with uh, Solomon and David, think about uh, the times of the writing prophets come either uh, a little bit before the divided monarchy, but especially during the divided monarchy, right? The kingdom splits. And so Zechariah, or after the kingdom splits, they're deported, there's exile, and then they come back. And so Zechariah is prophesying about what the temple is going to be like. God is giving promises about the restored temple. Uh, we're going to see another one in Zechariah here in just a little while. So, all right. Zechariah 8. Now that we kind of have a good historical idea of what's going on here. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus say the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. All right, there's the, the verse. They shall be my people, I will be their God. That is mentioned over and over and over again, all right? So we're thinking about what you could call redemptive history, where kind of the whole plan of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, the idea uh, is, to, is for God to dwell with his people once again. So Paul in 2 Corinthians is saying, we are not to be unequally yoked because we are the temple of God. Oh, I probably should have told you to keep your place in 2 Corinthians. What else does he quote in verse 6? So he quotes that one. We've seen it. 17. What? What is Isaiah 52? Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. I've got numbers in Isaiah. Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Again, for the sake of time, so these are very common words, common phrases that the Old Testament uh, gives us. What about, so we're going to take the time to look at these because I want to get to verse 18. Uh, the idea of do not touch what is unclean in 17. We get that from Old Testament and Leviticus and many other places. What about 18? This one's kind of difficult though. <clears throat> Where is Paul quoting from this one? Yeah, 2 Samuel 7. Does anybody know what that is off the top of your head? 
It's kind of a big, uh, a big event, I guess you'd say, in the Old Testament. Then I've got Jeremiah 31, and then a bunch of New Testament passages. It says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. So this is one I was saying that sometimes, uh, pretty often, Paul will take, well, in this instance, it's, I will be a father to you. That's from one verse, and you shall be my sons and daughters. That's from another one. He, he combines two Old Testament verses into one, but he's taking those concepts, those themes, and saying, just like of that, just like that Old Testament promise, we have the fulfillment of it. Therefore, do these things: live holy, do not be unequally yoked, because God says He has desired to dwell among His people. That takes us all the way back to Genesis, takes us all the way back to Zechariah, and then verse seventeen, He says, "Therefore, do this." And then He quotes Old Testament, um, usually the. Uh, ceremonial laws of clean and unclean from numbers and then again in verse 18 and because of this okay second samuel 7 what is that god's covenant with david do you have it open does anybody have it open there yeah uh, jana read read what it says because this is kind of interesting this verse 17, yeah or, I mean, for uh 7 14 yeah. Right, so that one's kind of weird because you're thinking, well, he's, it's God's talking to David, and the, this is the Davidic covenant, and what we know of from the New Testament is this, this is God's promise to David that uh, an heir would sit on the throne of David uh, eternally, forever, which we know Jesus is that heir, but he's saying uh, to David that, uh, read it again, that you will be my son, right? You will be my son. So that kind of leaves you scratching your head. Well, what does that have to do with God telling you know, Christians in general, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons. So kind of put that one off to the side and, and we'll come, maybe maybe Jeremiah will help us. Yeah. What, what does Jeremiah 31 say? 31 says, at the same time, saith the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Okay, so again, both of these are kind of, they're kind of vague, kind of ambiguous. It's not really a specific quote that really would apply to this. So now we're going to have to kind of pull some things together. So we've got, Paul says the church, in this instance, he says our bodies are the temple of God in another place. So we are the temple of God. I'm just trying to hold my place. We are, the church is the temple of God, just as God had said in Zechariah and Leviticus and Jeremiah and second samuel so what are some common themes in all of those passages how can we make sense of how paul is using this verse because he seems to be not just quoting it just to you know just quoting the bare verse he's he's pulling together a bunch of things we've got one from the law and one from the prophets and one from uh history right first samuel and the davidic covenant what are what are some common things Right. Yeah. You know, not just the number. Where we are connected with him, he desires to dwell with his people, but not just his people, but his family. So we we kind of get not just Jews. Right. He, uh, all of his children, whether right. Jew or Gentile. Would have been Jews. Exactly. Exactly. So that that's pretty significant. So Paul is applying 
the verse in Zechariah, which they would have understood as just being for the Jews um, and applying it to them. Zechariah is in the restoration period where they're rebuilding the temple. So uh, can we draw any conclusions from this? What, what would be... Now, where's, where's Paul going with this? He, he's telling us to do this because these things are true, but how is he using this verse? Can you think of anything else? Well, Go ahead, Jim. Yeah. Okay, yeah, for, uh, for 2 Samuel. Like, because we, I don't know, I struggle with this, though. You see people do things are not living right, but yet they claim, mm-hmm. you know, to, yep. to be saved. Right. So I, I feel like, to some point, like, if you have those, diff- that's the people that we need to separate mm-hmm. ourselves from. Yep, yep. Paul. And that mm-hmm. they would influence in living our life, you know, differently, or that. Yeah, and that fits this context. So don't be unequal to yoke. Come out from among them. Uh, where, where is that? That was in, oh, that's in First Corinthians 3. But um, so I guess we could say, because God um, has enabled us to dwell together, right? Because God has saved us. He has cleansed us of our sin. Because our sin is taken away, God dwells among us. We are the temple. Um, we are his dwelling place in the spirit. Therefore, we're to, there it is, come out from among them and be separate because he's our father. In what sense? Right? I'm thinking of First, first Samuel, or was it Second Samuel? Second um, Samuel 7, um, God's covenant with David. How would that apply here? Because the Jeremiah 31 seems to fit a little better. So, you know, this is kind of stuff as you have to be an investigator and ask yourself, why would... The, you know, my Bible put Second Samuel 7 here. You know, we're thinking temple, Davidic covenant, um, holy living. What is the connection between all of those? Jeremiah, I can get. That, that kind of makes sense. Um, but what about that Second Samuel one? What are some, some ideas on that one? Think of anything? Well, it goes to Jesus. Yeah, that, I think we've got to definitely start there. So how is Jesus connected with David, connected with the temple, connected with God dwelling in our midst? So, so how does, um, trying to say this without saying it, Jesus is obviously kind of the key that unlocks all of this, okay? So when you're studying a passage of scripture and you've got these themes or these concepts, then you've got to get the wheels turning and say, all right, uh, Paul is writing to Christians. So these Christians are being in Christ, they're going to understand that all of these verses point to Christ in some way, or Paul wouldn't be using it. So as Christians, how does Jesus connect us with the temple, the presence of God, and what else was the other one I said? And, and his family, 
I will be your father to you, right? Because that it seems that what Paul is doing is taking in all of those concepts and saying, because of your identity in Christ, because of who you are, you are the temple of God, live this particular way. But what I'm wanting us to figure out is how he's using these verses, because he seems to be making the point that because of your identity in Christ, he's the one that makes all these verses applicable to you. So does it go back to the verse, I am in him and he is in me? It's definitely a part of that, for sure. Um, So we know that Christ is in us, we are in him. Um, Christ is in God. Exactly. And, and so when you think of temple along those same lines, Paul says that we are the temple of God, but the temple's a big concept in the Bible, right? The temple was, in the Old Testament, that was, that's where God was. That's, you know, that's the way they thought it. It was huge. And so for the temple to be destroyed was, uh, I mean, that was essentially like their nation crumbling before them because uh, that was everything. And so Zechariah is prophesying about the restoration of the temple. Paul is saying, you are the temple. How are we the temple? Well, that is true. But he didn't say you're going to be the temple. He said, you are the temple. We are the present tense. This temple can't be destroyed, right? No, you're right. Remember last week, we talked about this, you know, Ephesians chapter 2. We were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the, the chief cornerstone. We went to 1 Peter, where we are those living stones. So the church is the temple. Um, our bodies are the temple. That's a, another place in Corinthians. But how does Jesus connect us to the temple? God lived in the temple. What about Jesus? Is Jesus ever... Did he ever make any statements about the temple? Let me put Destroy that. it and it'll be built up in three days. Let's go to that. Go to John chapter 2. That'd be a good one. So when you're trying to <clears throat> make sense of how an apostle is using these, these verses, that's right. Remember when I said you got to be just f- being familiar with just the content of the Bible. Just, you know, if a verse pops in your head, like, oh, just, just like what Shri did. You know, Jesus said something about that. You say, okay, I need to go you know, dig into more of that because Jesus said he was the temple. But now Paul is saying that we are the temple. So which one is it? Or is, is he the temple or are we the temple? So John chapter 2 kind of helps us a little bit. It's actually going to introduce us to another Old Testament verse. All right, John 2 verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for my house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Okay? So Jesus 
by his own his own word here says that he is the temple his body is the temple how how if we if you're thinking of temple the temple represented the presence of god the old testament right uh, how is jesus's body similar to or connected in any way with the old testament temple it can't be limited though to think of the temple as a building it's not a building i mean christ is what he's trying to show us there is the temple is god and then when you're talking about the old testament yeah there's so many references where jesus was there mm. during the old testament i mean yep. he when, when they were worried about the temple and everything else jesus was there yeah so it seems pretty strong in the writings of Paul that we need to understand that we're the temple yep. because Christ lives inside of us. So we can kind of start making those connections because we're in Him, uh, and He is in the Father, and essentially the, the temple is where God is. Where he, it wasn't the, the brick and mortar building. Well, it wasn't brick and mortar. It wasn't the, just the structure, but the structure represented His presence. It represented that God is here with us. Uh, but even God said, you know, I cannot dwell in, in, in houses made of, um, was it stone? Um, so they knew that, but just like we kind of do the same things. We put too much stock in, uh, you know, flesh and blood. We put too much emphasis on the buildings and instead of the people. So for the, the people in the Old Testament, the, the temple represented their safety. It represented God's nearness. It represented the covenant. It represented it was everything to them. And so this is why these people that Jesus is talking about, when he makes a statement like this, this was, you know, as my grandpa would say, them's fighting words, right? <laughs> just, you can't talk about destroying the temple um, and, and get away with it. But he's saying that his body represented in, in some way the presence of God, the, the, the being of God. He was, he was right there in their, in their midst. And so he's saying you, in his person, he is like the temple. He is God in the flesh. What, what did we talk about last week? Y'all remember, um, was it John? I don't think it was in John. Uh, Emmanuel, God with us. Where was that at? That was in Isaiah 7. In the New Testament, it was the Christmas story, right? Not in John, maybe it was Luke. God in our midst. Let me see if I've got it. That's kind of where I was going with this paper today. I didn't make any copies, but... Um, or oh, Matthew 1. Matthew 1, verse 23. You don't have to turn there, but... Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Right? So, God desiring to be with His people. Massive Old Testament concept. Represented by the temple. Jesus in His person is essentially God's presence among them. And he's saying his body is this temple that's going to be destroyed, but he's going to raise it up the third day. So because Jesus is the temple in a sense, and we are in him, and we have the Spirit of God because we have the presence of God with us all the time, in those things we can say that we are the temple of God. And because we are the temple of God, we are not to be unequally yoked uh, with unbelievers. And because... And I think that's where 2 Samuel 7 comes in, is that that's the Davidic covenant. That was the promise God made to David, which we understand ultimately applies to Christ because he is the true son of David. So that verse applies to Christ. It applies to us because we're in Christ. 
So the church being the temple of God is so because we are in Christ, who is the the presence of God in our midst. And so we experience all these things because of the Holy Spirit who we have with us. So I know that's a mouthful, but um, 2 Corinthians 6, I think, is, is taking all of those concepts and Paul does it just in one foul swoop, just like in one breath. He's saying, live this way because this is true, because this is true, and because this is true. And he quotes Old Testament but all of that makes sense because of what Christ has done. We, we cannot have the Spirit if our sins aren't forgiven. We cannot have our sins forgiven unless Christ is on the tree. We cannot, uh, Christ came and offered His body a sacrifice because He brought the presence of God in their midst. Um, maybe here's another way we can kind of think of it. Go to John, the Gospel of John 13, I think it is, or maybe it's 15. When... Um, Jesus talks about the Comforter. Uh, maybe it's 16. Fourteen. 14. Thank you, thank you. John 14. 15. Verse 15, you said? I think that's right. All right. Verse... Um, You said 15? Oh, for 16. I got you, I got you. Okay. Uh, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper or comforter, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, that phrase right there when Jesus first uttered that, the disciples, their minds would have gone to passages like Jeremiah 31, like Zechariah 8, and a whole bunch of host of other places, especially in Exodus. And, and he says it in Leviticus. For, for Jesus to say, he dwells with you and will be in you, they would have thought, what do you mean? God is in our midst? God is going to dwell not only just among us, but in us. That was a huge deal. And, Paul, and Jesus is essentially saying, yes, verse 18 I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And sure, that's what you're getting at. So just basically to sum it all up, because of Christ, you know, it's the, the stance all Jesus. When it out, Jesus out. That's what, you know, tell the kids. If you get called on and buy, you know, Sunday school or something like that, Jesus is the answer to everything. Yes, that is true. That is true. So when you're really trying to study Scripture and, and trying to figure out why are they quoting these things like this, it doesn't, this doesn't make any sense. Um, it's because of Christ, right? Because of the Spirit, because we are in Him and He is in the Father, and, we're, and because we're united with Him, those verses have application to us, okay? But it's, it's helpful to understand how and why, because if you... If you think that the apostles are just, you know, pulling verses out of the Old Testament and just using them however they want, you may be uh, tempted to use the New Testament that way and just, you know, just take a verse and say, well, I believe this because this one verse says this in this one place, right? And if you use the Bible that way, you can make it say whatever you want. And critics of the Bible have made that claim. They look, they read the Apostle Paul like in 2 Corinthians and 6 and said, he's just pulling verses out of thin air, making the Old Testament say whatever he wants. 
No, he's not. He has a very specific way that he uses the Old Testament. And it's in context, but I guess you could say it's, it's Christological. It's Christocentric, meaning that those verses by themselves don't really have any application. For, but Christians, people who are in Christ, those verses have every bit of application because of the Davidic covenant. Uh, because Christ is the fulfillment of the law, because Christ is the, the temple of God in our midst, because we're in him, all of those verses have application to us. So Paul's not just stringing all this together G, out of Jesus' own words. Um, he said he was going to dwell among us. How does he dwell among us? By his spirit. But where is his temple? It is his people, right? Okay, all that being said, remember the... Uh, commencement, continuation, consummation idea. Here's another one that kind of has been helpful for me. Already, not yet. <laughs> okay, Already, not yet. That's another way of saying uh, layered fulfillment. It's another way of saying commencement, continuation, consummation. That scripture gives us this already, not yet aspect. Remember those verses we looked at about salvation and redemption and adoption? These things are already, but they're not yet okay the temple idea is is another one like this when uh, Zechariah prophesied of the restored temple I'll tell you what we can look at it go to was it in here I think it's in our book Let's see if I can find it we skipped over it I really wish I had uh, page numbers so let's see if I can find it All right, it is this one, Understanding Prophecy Part 2. I believe this is going to get us back to Zechariah and the Restoration period. Okay? <clears throat> because the temple um, in Zechariah, there are many aspects of that temple that haven't been accomplished, right? Because if... Paul is saying, you are the temple of God, and quoting Zechariah, but when you read Zechariah, you think, wait a minute, there's, is the, the church or the people of God, is that the consummation of the restored temple? That if, if you didn't go back and read Zechariah, you would assume that. You would think, oh, well, the, the temple is restored, but not necessarily. It has been uh, consummated. It, has been, it is continuing. No, I'm saying it has been commenced. It is continuing, but we're waiting on the consummation. Let me show you again about this. So many prophecies are fulfilled in different layers. And I've got Jeremiah that quotes about a restored temple. Flip the page over. <clears throat> Here's one in Ezra. This is where we'll take us to Zechariah. So Ezra, where did he uh, prophesy? When did he prophesy? What time period? You know off the top of your head? Babylon? Let me see. I was thinking King David's time? Oh, oh, uh, what time period would you call that? Was it's the restoration period? I was thinking it's the restoration period. Okay. So when you're thinking restoration period, thinking restored temple. When you're thinking temple, thinking the restoration of God's presence in their midst. That's the way they would have thought it. When the, when the temple was gone and destroyed, the Jews would have thought God's not here, in a way. I mean, they knew that he's in the heavens. They get all that. But 
their, their temple for them was their, their visible representation of God's presence. And so the temple being destroyed uh, was huge for them. So Ezra in chapter 6, verses 13 through 15 says, Then Tetanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shathar Barznai and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edu. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Okay, or Darius, however, depending on what part of East Texas you're from. So, um, what is, so Ezra, Haggai, uh, Zechariah prophesied about the restored temple. Here we have in Ezra, the temple is restored. Okay. Um, what, what's the problem with this? The temple was prophesied about being restored. It was rebuilt to, so did it stay there? This temple here, did, was that it? Did, did it stay there eternally? <laughs> the temple was destroyed again, wasn't it? Um, so if you're a Jew and you were building this temple and you knew of the words of Haggai and Zechariah and you're sitting there and you saw the temple and then um, you had these writings and then the temple was destroyed again, you would be kind of scratching your head thinking, well, I thought God told us. God had told us it was going to be restored. And there's some pretty uh, and beautiful language. They, prophet, they pro prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edu. Let's take a look at, well, it's in our books. We don't have to turn there. Look, look at number two. What did Haggai prophesy about? Listen to this, just the language of what the temple was going to be like. In the seventh month, on the 21st, the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more is it, it is a little while, and I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord. That's what they were expecting, that when the temple is built, this is what it was going to be like. It was going to be glorious beyond anything else. Uh, then he brings in the nations. I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Which, by the way, for them, they probably would have associated the desire of all nations with the temple. And I, as a matter of fact, I think they still do. Because you know, we've read several others in the Old Testament that talked about when the temple is restored, all the nations are going to flow into it, right? So they thought the temple was going to be the thing 
that was going to um, bring them on top. It was going to be glorious beyond compare. And all the world would know it. But it didn't. It was destroyed again. And it was destroyed again. Um, when Jesus in John chapter 2 was talking about destroy this temple. And I'll destroy it in three days. Remember they said this one's taken 46 years. Which temple was that? Remember? Was it this temple? And Ezra's day? Not that one. Uh, that's what, it was what some people call Herod's temple because they rebuilt it and it was okay. Then Herod thought he'd beautify it and it was just huge, massive. It was, it was wonderful. But all the Jews knew when they read Haggai that something still was missing. It's just not what God described it to be. And so Paul and the rest of the apostles, the lights came on when they thought, oh, Jesus is the one who accomplishes all of this. And the desire of all nations is not the building, it's the person. It's Jesus himself. Oh wait, I am in Jesus. We are his temple. How are we, about, how are we his temple? By the Spirit of God. And so the, the nations shall come to the temple. The desire of all nations is accomplished in Christ, the proclamation of the gospel. But it's still not finished yet, right? There's, there's more aspects the restored temple is still to come, but it's continuing right now. So consummation, continuate, commencement, co continuation, consummation. So the, the restoration of the temple prophesied by Zechariah, Ezra, Haggai, and all these others finds its one layer of fulfillment in Ezra's day. They did rebuild the temple, then it was destroyed again. It finds another layer of fulfillment in Zerubbabel's day. Finds another layer in the, the time of, well, before the 46 years before Jesus, when they were rebuilding the, the temple once again. The Jews would have thought, now this is going to be it. This is going to be the one that is going to be better than all the others. The ones that uh, Haggai prophesied about. But it didn't, because it was Herod's temple. They're still living under Roman rule. The nations aren't pouring into this temple. But when you get to Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit of God is poured out, and you get to Acts chapter 10, and the, the Gentiles are flooding in, right? They're pouring in to the temple, as it were. They're, they're coming to Christ, who is the temple. Um, he is the desire of all nations. And when the Gentiles are, are flooding into the church, this is how the apostles interpreted the partial fulfillment of these verses. But when we get to the book of Revelation, what do we get? What is, how does Revelation kind of describe? Go to Revelation 22. I think, 21. Let's see. I think it's 21 I'm thinking of. Uh, look at Jeremiah, I'm sorry, <laughs> Revelation 21, 22. I'm going to read one here and just keep reading. This is the end of the book, right? This is the end. This would be, when you think of Revelation, think of the consummation of all things. This is when all things are going to come together. But the reason why I want us to think of, you know, those three C's is because if you think that the book of Revelation is just way off down there in the future and there's really nothing going on right now, I think we're missing a lot of what God is doing. That 
the already not asked, already not yet aspect to me is exhilarating because our hope is not just way off in the future. It is. We do have a hope that's coming in the future. But in our present time now, God is doing a great work. And it's no less the work of the prophets. When he talks about uh, gathering his children to himself, when he's talking about uh, restoring the temple, when he's talking about pouring out his spirit upon all flesh, that's not just way in the future. That's happening now. Every time uh, a sinner repents, um, gets baptized, joins a church, their lives changed and transformed. That is something that God has, that's a work that God has done. But it's the work of Jeremiah 31. I will, um, I will give you a heart, take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm thinking of Ezekiel 37, when those dry bones come alive. That's happening. This is why it's exciting to me to think about prophecy in this way, because you can read the book of Revelation and you think, man, I can't wait for these things to happen. Nothing's going on right now. That's not true. The, the words of the prophets are happening, but they're going to happen. <laughs> they're going to be accomplished. Look at 22 of chapter 21. But I saw no temple in it for the Lord God. That's in the New Jerusalem, right? But I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it and the Lamb is its light. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Right? Thinking about the desire of all nations. That the, Jesus is the desire of all nations. He is the true temple. When people come to Him, they are coming, in a sense, to the presence of God and being saved. And so we are the body. The church is His body. Therefore, when they come to church, when they are joined to the church, they are coming to Christ. and they, It's kind of so connected. Now, I'm not saying that the church is Christ. Christ is Christ. He's the head, but we are his body. And so the consummation of all things is essentially a description of this. The nations who are saved walk in its light. Verse 25, its gates shall be shut all day, and there shall be no night there. And there shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means enter it, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And let's just keep reading. We'll take a break after this. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every year, or fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, I'm looking for the place where it said, uh, and I will dwell among, did I miss it already? Um, maybe it was, I thought it was in 21, where he says, and I will dwell among them. Twenty-one three. It says God's dwelling with humanity. Uh, oh yeah, that that's the one. I didn't go back far enough. That this is the verse I was. Um, Twenty-one one. We'll start there. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Behold, the dwelling or the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what I was looking for. Thank you, Shri. So when you think of Paul in 2 Corinthians quoting the Old Testament of this huge concept of God dwelling among his people, uh, and that, that, that motivates them and is essentially a call to holy living because God is in our midst. But then you read in Revelation that God is going to be in our midst. Well, which one is it? It's both of them. It's already and it's not yet. How is all of this possible? Because of Christ. Christ being the temple that was destroyed and rebuilt. The church is his temple. We are his temple that is being built as we speak, living stones. But there's going to come a time in the consummation of all things when there will be no more temple, right? All that, that all of that imagery, what is it? There's a song, there's an old hymn that says, and my faith shall be sight. You ever heard that phrase? What is that song? I can't remember the, 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 the hymn, but that's essentially it. That when the Lord returns, the new heavens and the new earth and everything is the way it's supposed to be, then it's a complete reversal of Genesis 3. When God was in, in our midst, God was walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, Sin entered the world and death through sin. And then all of time, all of human history, um, between Genesis 1 and the book of Revelation, all of that is essentially God uh, making it possible for his people to dwell among them. And he does that through Christ. He does that and is doing that through the church. And he will do that ultimately in the end of time. Let's pause right there, take a break. Any... All right, well, let's pick up so... The all of these classes up to this point is just trying to show you the unique nature of prophecy and how it works. That prophet can utter something, it can find an immediate fulfillment in their day, it could have been another generation, it could have been centuries down the road, then it finds another fulfillment in Christ and the church, then it can find its final consummation in the, the future, whenever, whenever the Lord returns. So that's kind of my, the thesis, right? That's, that's kind of the, the big idea. Now, taking all of that, we can now begin to go to the New Testament. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 24. You can take there. And i just preface all this by saying, um, I think I may be in the minority in this approach to Matthew chapter 24, but I'm... I'm Pretty well convinced that it, not that I'm right, but it's at least probably the best option or a better option because there have been, Christians have been studying this for a long time. And again, I didn't invent this approach to prophecy. The people have been doing this for years and years and years. And it's just not as popular because nobody's ever made a movie series over this way of looking at prophecy. Okay? When, when the Left Behind series came out, it kind of um, enshrined some concepts of the rapture and end times and all these uh, eschatological events into the culture, the fabric of our American culture, and it, and it is just very popular. So, so I'm going to go against the grain a little bit here. Um, and so this next half of this class and then the last class are going to be basically what I consider the application of this um, apocalyptic hermeneutic. I guess you could, that's a fancy way of saying it. But to me, it, it seems to make sense of a lot of different things. It seems to fit a little better. 
um, and it harmonizes a lot of things. And Matthew chapter 24 is one of those uh, hot button passages that Christians differ over. But, but maybe, hopefully, we can read Matthew chapter 24 and start seeing some similarities. Because Jesus is going to predict the destruction of the temple. He's going to predict his coming. He's going to predict some signs to his coming. And uh, hopefully we can make some sense out of it. So, let's begin. Matthew 24, and verse 1. <clears throat> then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Okay? So Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, which we've already established that the, the Jews were, I don't want to say used to it, but the, the, the temple being destroyed is something that is uh, very significant in their, throughout all of their history. So here we have the temple that, it, that was built, been taken 46 years, which the Jews would have thought, yeah, we, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied about this, but in the back of their minds they knew, but... The Messiah hasn't come. The, the temple's not as glorious as God said it was going to be. So what's the deal? They're, they're waiting on the Messiah to bring in all of these things. But now the Messiah is here, and he's saying he's going to destroy the temple. Like, oh, wait. All right. He didn't say he was going to destroy it. <laughs> he said it's going to be destroyed again. And so, you know, for them hearing us for the first time, they're thinking, well, I thought you were the Son of God. I thought you're the Messiah. I thought you're the one that's going to rescue and deliver remember the two travelers on the road to Emmaus when they were walking away and they're sad they said we thought it was him who was going to restore Israel remember in Acts chapter 1 they, they were asking Jesus okay now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel right so they're still waiting on all this stuff to happen he said no nope, it's not for you to know but you're going to receive power okay so it's not that he said when I change my mind I'm going to wait a little bit longer he didn't say that he said no I'm not, going to do, I'm not going to bring everything in its fullness right now. But I am going to do something. You're going to receive the Spirit. And so the Spirit um, is actively involved in rebuilding the temple as we speak. He's saving people. We're living stones. <clears throat> so just kind of keep that in mind. Verse 3. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age that's the question and jesus answered and said to them take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying i am the christ and will deceive many and you will hear wars and rumors of wars see that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because of lawlessness, I'm sorry, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, 
stand, or I'm sorry, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand. Be tracking with him at verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh will be saved. But for elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the angels will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already come, tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass <coughs> until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will, not, will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Let me just pause there. And I'm just going to go through our book. And all this is in the book. I'm on part 11. The eschatology of the Gospels and the Epistles. is basically just kind of bullet points. Uh, it's not really interpreting anything just yet. We're just, just kind of making note of what Jesus has said up to this point. Okay, So uh, if you see, the, does everybody have it on part 11? The eschatology of the Gospels and Epistles. And basically what we're doing is we're just going to kind of survey uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Survey the epistles. That's all of Paul's letters and James and, and Acts and things like that. And just, just write down what they say about it. We're not going to try to figure it all out just yet. We're just going to just write down some facts. So his coming will be sudden. Uh, it will be accompanied by signs and a display of power. It will be visible. Uh, verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, it will be glorious. Number four, Christ will come in glory. His full divine nature will be displayed in contrast to the hidden glory in his first coming and the humbleness of his incarnation. Uh, number five, it follows a period of eschatological suffering. That just means end times. And whenever you see eschatology or eschatological, just think of the end of days, the end of time stuff. Uh, that will intensify prior to his coming. It will be in two forms. Uh, number five, letter A, apostasy and deception among professing believers. We get that from verse 24. There will be great persecution against believers. Number six, Christ's coming follows the evangelization of the world. This gospel is to be taken to all nations. Remember that in verse 14. <clears throat> where he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. 
letter B. No one knows the second when the second coming will be. We left off on that part. That's in 32 through 37. Letter C, when Jesus comes, all living and dead will be gathered together to be with Christ. There are certain events surrounding this gathering. It is after the appearance of the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation. Letter D, before Jesus comes again, the gospel will be preached to all the nations. And there seems to be some kind of conversion of Jews at the return of Christ. We kind of get a hint of something like that in Matthew 23 and verse 39. Let's Let's read that one. It's actually 37 through 39. Let's see what that says. 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay? That's just an interesting phrase, right? And so we just say, wait a minute. Um, he didn't say, um, until you see me no more, and that's it. He said, when you see me again. So it's kind of implying that the, the Jews will see him again. All right? So that's just kind of just some, just some facts. Uh, he also talks about resurrection, the final judgment, and the kingdom. For example... Uh, Roman number two, letter A, Jesus taught that there would be a bodily resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Uh, let's look at some of these. Uh, let's try the Luke passage. Let's go to Luke 20. Let's go to Luke 20, because I believe this is the same account uh, as Matthew 24, if I remember correctly. I think Luke 20... Uh, no, actually, it's 21 where he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Luke 20, and let's see what verses 36 and 37 say. Let's see here. Make sure I got the right scripture reference here. Luke 20, 36 is Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord God, when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Now I don't see why that, how that one actually talks of resurrection of the just and the unjust. Did I miss something there? He talks about resurrection being sons of the resurrection. Um... Which ones? I thought it was going to... What did he say in 36? Nor can they die anymore for their... They cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. Well, I thought it... There, Jesus thought there would be bother of both the righteous and the wicked. Well, I guess it's just a reference to... I thought it was going to be the passage where it says the resurrection of the just and the unjust. That may be uh, the mark passage let me just check real quick that's kind of what i wanted to see it's to me that one's just a little a little big mark 12 25 no same thing all right let's uh i'm all we're doing just kind of just pointing out some facts uh letter b at the final judgment satan and his angels will be thrown into eternal fire matthew 25 41 
if we familiar with that one, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so nothing really uh, too difficult there. Uh, this is on, uh, back in your book, letter C, the eschatological kingdom. Uh, this one's pretty significant though. The eschatological manifestation of the kingdom involves the complete reign of God in contrast to the hidden and incomplete nature of the kingdom today. So I think this one bears some, some digging into. Go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Oh, it is Mark 13. I bet it's supposed to be Matthew though. All right, let me check Mark 13 real quick. I kind of wanted to go. That's the, that's the destruction of the temple. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I know what I'm doing. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, letter C, that statement there at number one when it says, um, in contrast to the hidden and incomplete nature of the kingdom of, of, of today. That is in Matthew 13. In the Olivet Discourse in 13, Jesus does not expound on the nature of the future kingdom. But we, I do want to go to Matthew 13. So go to Matthew 13 because Jesus is teaching something significant about the nature of the kingdom of God that I think will help us. Because um, it, 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 it kind of, it's the already not yet idea is it, it, kind of here. <clears throat> all right, Matthew 13. We're not going to look at all of these uh, parables because Jesus gives a series of parable here but we're going to do the one of the wheat and the tares <clears throat> and let's do uh 18 matthew 13 18 therefore hear the parable of the sower when anyone hears the word oh, i'm sorry no i want the wheat and the tares where's that at 24 24 another parable he put forth to them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and he went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, just talking to Ray just a little bit on the break, how it's been challenging to uh, minister and teach younger you know, kids, like teenagers and 20s, because they're not, they're not familiar a lot with just agriculture, um, maybe as they were you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, whatever. So what's, what, what's a wheat? Well, we know what wheat is, right? you got wheaties. Kids can understand. What's a tear, though? We don't really talk about tares. They're kind of weed. Kind of a wheat. So the wheat is the good stuff, right, with the crop. And then the tares are just stuff growing up in the wheat. So we've got the parable of the wheat and the tares. Um, here's a little fun thing I like to do a lot of time because this we, we use this, this phrase, the wheat and the tares. Where have you heard that in our... Church life, you know, churchianity. <laughs> when when we talk about wheat and the tares, what is it normally associated with? The wheat and the tares. How do we? Maybe you have it. I, I have a few times. Yeah. So you think about wheat and the tares. It's usually like 
Yeah, kind of like sheeps and goats, uh, wheats and tares, believers, unbelievers. Yes. Okay, so say it again. False prophets. Uh, I've heard it like um, people in the church that um, maybe are kind of wayward. They, they don't live like Christians, but they're nevertheless, uh, they're, they're, you know, they, with their mouth, they profess to be believers, but with their lives, they're not. I've heard of that pretty common too, but it's, it's if you, once we get the, the explanation of the parable, you can see that it really wouldn't apply to that. Um, because the wheat and the tares get explained, which is wonderful, because the, the disciples ask him, explain to us this parable. So we actually get from Jesus himself who the wheat and who the tares are. So go to verse 36. <clears throat> then Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house, and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked. Okay? So he's pretty specific there. I think, you know, false prophets, they're pretty wicked, right? But if we're trying to be specific as possible, it seems like you've got these two contrasting people, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wicked, or the sons of what, the, the devil, basically, because in verse 39, setting in, so... I would say unbelievers. I hesitate to say, you know, people who claim to be believers but are probably not because it doesn't seem to fit his context here. I think there's other passages we could use to kind of talk about that, but the specifically the parable of the wheat and the tares, he's explaining to them uh, an aspect of the kingdom that was unfamiliar to them. You have sons of the kingdom, believers, and sons of the devil, unbelievers, in the same field, Okay. The wheat and the tares are growing up together. The field is the world. Field's not the church. Okay, this is why I hesitate of saying that this could be, you know, be talking about people in the church that really aren't Christians, because it's people in the world. It's the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. <clears throat> the tares are the sons of the wicked one. Verse thirty-nine. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Okay, pretty clear so far. Verse forty. Therefore. As the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Y'all got a mental picture so far? You've got all this harvest. You've got good wheat growing up, and you've got the evil tares growing up all in the same field. But do you remember in, when he gave the parable, look again at verse 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servant said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Very important imagery there, right? Mm -hmm. Because just like if you go out in this pasture and somebody says, I want to take up all the wheat and just takes like a scalp. You know, or whatever. I don't know the, the implement you would use, but it just, you would take up everything with it and you would destroy your own crops. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like, no. So look at verse uh, 41 <coughs> where we left off. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay? So it's very important we keep this kind of mental picture in your mind. <clears throat> now, think about... 
the aspect of the already not yet idea, would you say, so this in Matthew 13, just right here, don't go to anywhere else yet, but in Matthew 13, would you say that Jesus is saying that the kingdom is coming or that the kingdom is present? Just using Matthew 24. Coming. Coming. I think so. Now, looking at the rest of the New Testament, would you say that the kingdom is come? I think at Revelation, it talks about a kingdom, right? Yeah. I would think the kingdom's here. The harvest is coming. So, are we waiting on a future kingdom at all? Or is it all here right now? <laughs> I think you're right. Um, hold your place there in Matthew and go to Colossians real quick. Yeah, I'm trying to set you up in case you hadn't noticed. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it's. I think the kingdom idea is probably one of the best um, concepts of the Bible that we can see the already not yet. Kind of gave it away there, didn't I? Go to Colossians. Because <clears throat> remember, in Acts chapter 1, he said, the disciples asked, is it now or are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know. Okay? He didn't say no, but he said it's not for you to know. But we have a verse like this that I, I think is pretty clear. Uh, Philippians, Colossians, I think it's in 1. I need to find it real quick. Um, Look at chapter 1, verse 13. <clears throat> referring to Christ. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated or conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Right? He didn't say who is going to convey us to the kingdom or translate us to the kingdom. So, and, there, and there are other places. So is the kingdom future? Yes. Is the kingdom present? Yes. Okay. So when you're thinking of uh, already not yet, uh, commence, continuation, consummation, the kingdom fits right in there with it. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. That was his first sermon, right? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the Jews are thinking, great, it's about to be here in a minute. But when he taught about the kingdom, he left them scratching their head, especially in Matthew chapter 13. He said, the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this. The kingdom is going to be like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while he slept, an enemy came and sowed tares. So what is the, the, what is the field? The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. So Jesus is teaching that in the kingdom, uh, while it is here in the present, there's going to be evil and the wicked growing up together. But the harvest is coming. There's going to be a great harvest where uh, the wicked and the righteous will be separated. But I just want us to see that even in Jesus' teaching, we have this, these layers. He, now, Old Testament predicted a kingdom that was going to come. Jesus came preaching a kingdom. Jesus brought the kingdom, but not in all of its fullness. The, the consummation of the kingdom, which we get in Genesis, uh, Revelation 20, is still future to come. And so this, the, when... This happens when the kingdom comes in, in all of its fullness, there will be a great harvest. 
not like we think of harvest when souls come. No, it's going to be a, a sifting. It's going to be a harvest. And so uh, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. In verse 43, I think that's uh, pretty significant. I mean, think about it for them. If the Jews of Jesus's day were expecting the Messiah to come in one foul swoop, to usher in the kingdom, to destroy all of their enemies, all of those passages you read in the Old Testament about you know, blood and fire and vapor, smoke and all that stuff of the great day of the Lord. That's what they were expecting Jesus to usher in. Uh, but instead, he went to Jerusalem, he died on a cross and then disappeared as, you know, as they see it. You know, he's gone. But the disciples, when they saw him raised from the dead, when they received the Holy Spirit, all the lights kept going on. And they started figuring out, oh, he brought the kingdom, but not like we were all expecting he brought many aspects of it that we can enjoy now. The forgiveness of sins, uh, like we just read in Colossians. He's destroyed our enemies for us. But yet we're still in this present evil age. Uh, the Jews didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. They, they didn't want the evil and the righteous growing up together. Uh, they just didn't like that one bit. And so they crucified him. But they didn't realize that this was all part of God's plan. So when we're thinking about end time stuff, we're thinking about kingdom consummation of the kingdom we're thinking about harvest we're thinking about resurrection um any questions on that before we flip our page over running out of time already all right all right so turn the page and we'll kind of want to get to the epistles here so uh, i'm going to finish where we left off letter a at the top of that page jesus does not address whether there will be a millennial kingdom before the eternal kingdom okay uh is everybody heard of the millennial thousand year reign or we've at least heard of that right thousand reign it's in there it's in genesis 20 so jesus doesn't speak about a thousand year talks about a kingdom a bunch of times okay doesn't mean that he doesn't reference a thousand year reign of Christ. He could, but just in the Gospels, which we're just specifically going through, Jesus never mentioned about a thousand year reign anywhere. Okay, just keep that in mind. The parables of the kingdom of Matthew 25 describe the coming of the eschatological kingdom. Uh, number three, God will reign with Christ at his right hand. We see that in Mark. The 12 apostles will reign with Christ and participate in the judgment of Israel. Matthew 19, 28. I kind of have a different idea on that one let's look at that one real quick matthew 19 <clears throat> just kind of throw my two cents in there while i got a chance matthew 19 28 and i have to admit i don't know exactly what this is it could be very literal is exactly what he says, but it seems like there, there's a little more to it. But I don't know. Matthew 19, verse 28. <clears throat> Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, okay, that by the way, that's we used, that word is only used, I think, twice in the whole New Testament when it's referring to this. We've heard of regeneration in terms of a person being saved. We said they, they're born again. That's regeneration. But here he's talking about uh, the end of time, the end of days, uh, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on, the twel on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, I don't know. When I, when I get to Revelation, it, there's, it says something very similar to that, but 
it's it's almost seems like it's not the actual original 12 apostles that are literally going to be sitting on thrones. Now, don't get me wrong. It could be. It's a possibility. But it may be... Um, it may be another way of saying, well, think about Ephesians chapter 2 when he said that um, uh, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone, that, that essentially the apostolic witness, the, the New Testament, the word of the apostles, which came directly from Christ, um, when you, to reject the New Testament is to reject the word, to reject Christ. And so that's a judgment. It could be that when he's saying that you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel, um, it, it's either they're actually going to be sitting on thrones judging the actual literal Israel, or it's another way of saying that your testimony as it bears witness will be a judge to Israel. Does that make sense? I don't know. The, the only the problem I have is that I can't find... Anywhere, because this seems like a pretty significant thing, where the twelve apostles are going to be sitting on thrones judging. I just—it's not mentioned a whole lot in um, anywhere else, really. Just here, and then a kind of a vague way in the Book of Revelation. But in the Book of Revelation, it's—it seems like it's the apostles' testimony, the word of God, that's going to be the judge, not them actually sitting on thrones. Have you ever heard anything on this verse here? Yeah, that's the, that's the thing. It's it's the same type of language, but it's a, a different scenario. It, the reason why it gives me pause is because since I've seen how you know prophecy works, it kind of makes me you know question everything. You know, kind of kind of want to rethink everything. Um, there, it's just I. Do I, I, y'all know of any other place in the New Testament where the Lord tells the apostles that He's going? They're going to judge. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not setting you up this time. I'm really asking. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, could this be the millennial rule? Let's see. Because mine says messianic age instead of what? Are, what does mine say? Generation. Yeah, yours says. Yeah, yours says messianic age. Yeah. I think it's one of those words because I got a little footnote on mine. Word? No, I don't. I thought I did. Um. Because something like that, I wish I had my other Bible with me. Sometimes translators, because the word regeneration wouldn't really make sense if we just translated it, they they may have just kind of interpreted the regeneration as the messianic age. Because I don't there's because messianic age would have a distinct word, and regeneration is is one word in the original. I know that. So anyway, but I, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll just back it up a verse, and it's Peter talking to him. And Peter's uh, saying to Jesus, uh, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Hmm. And then when Jesus is talking in the next verse, he's talking to Peter. And that's where he's telling Peter that <coughs> he'll sit in the throne uh, when the Son of Man shall sit um, the throne of his glory. And you also shall sit upon twelve thrones Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So I guess He's talking to Peter there. Uh, Is that I, the one hundred and forty-four thousand? 
Well, here's the thing. I, I guess it all depends on what the regeneration or messianic age is. But we isn't could, the millennial kingdom where Jesus rules and forever kingdom is God ruling? Well, we, we haven't got there yet. That's what many people uh, believe it is. But I personally don't. <laughs> um, the millennial kingdom is only talked about in, in Revelation 20. And we're going to get there. The, the last class, we're going to try to decipher a lot of that stuff. But there are many who think that um, there's going to be a, a rapture, secret rapture. Believers are going to disappear, leaving unbelievers on the earth. That there will be a period of seven-year tribulation, which will be complete chaos, anarchy. Christ will return after that seven-year period with His saints to uh, destroy everyone else that's on the earth and then usher in the millennial reign, the millennial kingdom, which will last for 1,000 years. That Christ and the apostles will reign for 1,000 years on earth. And then some, not all, believe that that is when the temple will actually be restored. Um, some believe it will be a literal actual temple with actual sacrifices once again. Some say, no, it's just the temple is kind of like the temple now, that be a thousand year reign but then satan's going to be loosed at the end of that thousand reign final judgment final battle devil is thrown into the abyss and then the new heavens and new earth are ushered in that's kind of the the majority report i think at least in our area of eschatology does that kind of sound familiar rapture tribulation millennium okay yeah that's kind of the norm so could this be talking about that possible um you know, I haven't. Matt, I have a Here's the thing. There's y'all gonna make me study this because I'm kind of curious now. <clears throat> yes, all of those are possibilities, but not all of them can be right. Um, when when I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, it made me think. Um, in Ephesians one, it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of His Father. One possibility could be that he's talking about after his ascension. Okay, hear me out. Okay, because we're almost, we're almost dead. Hear me out. I think it's in the realm of possibility. I haven't done enough research on it yet. But just thinking about how prophecy works, could it be that Jesus is telling the twelve that after I enter into my passion, that I'm buried in the ground, resurrected, after I'm ascended to the Father and I pour out the Holy Spirit and I'm seated at the right hand of God, you who have stayed faithful to me throughout all of this time of my earthly ministry, it will be your word that is the arbiter. It is your word that stands as judgment whether someone enters the kingdom or not. Does that make sense? Because I'm thinking like the book of Acts. These twelve went about all the world preaching the gospel. It was their word. And if people rejected their gospel, then they were doomed. They've missed the kingdom. Could it be that when he said, Jesus, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom in that Luke passage, he's, he's, that, this is language of divesting authority in the apostles, is what I'm saying. 
not necessarily end time stuff. Now, whatever the regeneration is, the messianic age, I think would be the determiner of that. And now I'm very curious. Also, Revelation 21 is talking about the wall, the city walls. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles were on the foundation. Yeah. And so that would be the foundation that you're talking about. Yeah. They, they so were, the apostolic authority, I think for us, it's, it's, it's hard for us to kind of grasp that because um, we're just, I, maybe we're used to it. We, but when we think of apostles, Jesus gave, him, gave them his authority. Uh, now, they're not equal to Christ, of course, but, um, and that's what we have this book. This New Testament is the apostolic authority. And, um, and, and it may be that what he's saying is, in the, regenera- the regeneration is the, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the gathering in of God's people as the, the, during the gospel age, during the church age, that that is the regeneration, that is the messianic age. Um, that that it, this, this message, these, this New Testament message, is judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That makes it like that their, it's their word that determines whether or not Israel enters into the kingdom. But if regeneration is talking about just strictly the end of the age, the end time stuff, because when, when I first read this, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, and it's in our book. <laughs> I thought of, well, that's when he returns, when he sits on the throne of his glory. But he's sitting on a throne now. So I don't it's know. Not, this passage is in the context of salvation with God being involved. Yeah, it's not in the context of his return. That's so, what's throwing me off. <clears throat> that's why I'm kind of backtracking now. See, I put this scripture reference in there because I assumed this context was when he sits on the throne of his glory is when he returns. But he's not he's not really talking about his return, is he? Are you talking about him Yeah, he just he just talked about talked to the rich young ruler. Um, it's after that conversation. And the disciples asking, Well, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? With all things God well, with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, Hey, we've left everything and followed you. What are we gonna get? And it's almost like Jesus is saying, I'm giving you my authority. That's what you get. Um, hmm, interesting. So is this a note on number three, the 12 apostles? Is this from this guy, Dr. Barry? I think the bottom, uh, I thought the bottom, no, you're right, you're right. I think all of this chapter is actually. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, so it's not mine, it's Dr. Barry's. <laughs> You thought I was correcting myself? Yeah. Hey, it's happened. It's happened. No, this is Dr. Barry's stuff. No, but I read it, and and that's just kind of one of those things. If you get you get familiar with verses, and you you assume things sometimes, and you know sometimes you got to read you know rethink, go back and read it again because. I've always assumed this verse, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, was in the context of like Matthew chapter 24, when it's talking about His return. But it isn't. And right after it is, the kingdom of heaven is. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. Now I'm going to do some research. So, and that's that's kind of the whole big deal. Everybody is that getting us to see how the language of Scripture works, so we don't just get you know we miss stuff sometimes because we hear it, we hear it, we hear it, we hear it, you know. 
And uh, so this hopefully at least kind of make us read scripture with fresh eyes and, and kind of rethink. It, it may change something of your theology, it may not, but at least it'll help us to, to look at the scripture afresh. So, all right, let's stop right there. Any 